Welcome to the 21st Century Church podcast. Please check out our website at 21stcenturychurch.co.uk for more information. We'd love to connect with you, so head over to our Facebook and Instagram pages. Enjoy this message from our senior pastor, Stefan Jones. How are we today? Doing all right? Radiant, Rob said. Well, that was, that was a wonderful adjective there to use. Well, I'm, uh, I'm one of these people, right? I actually, I, I enjoy reading the news. So I don't know if there's anyone else with me. Who are the people who like reading the news? Who are the people who don't like reading the news? Okay, I think we're going to see a correlation here about what I'm going to say. Because uh, what I try and do is, especially, you know, with preaching and all of that, I try and make sure that I'm getting kind of a rounded picture. So on my Twitter, I follow, I follow the Telegraph. And I follow The Guardian, okay? So they kind of bounce each other off. I like The Spectator because you have columnists arguing against each other. My wife, on the other hand, she gets her news from a place called Facebook. (laughs) And I'm guessing those of you who said you don't like reading the news, that's maybe where you get your news from. But Facebook, people, is not a good place to get news from. I just want to point that out right now. As, uh, As I came across this recently, in the week that uh, a piece of news that went huge on Facebook last September from uh, an organization called Time News International, sounds very legitimate, and the caption read, a capital airline's Beijing-Macau flight was carrying 166 people and it made an emergency landing in Shenzhen on the 28th of August 2018 after aborting a landing attempt in Macau due to mechanical failure, the airline said. And there was video attached 14 million views. So uh, let's have a look at that, that video, shall we? Maybe uh, see what you think. Now then, here's, uh, here's the thing about that video. I Hopefully on a big screen you were able to notice it. It's not a real video, people. <laughs> that is what they call fake news. And yet... That had 14 million views on Facebook. 14 million. Now, this is the weird thing as well, how it's sneaky, because a plane did do an emergency landing on that day in Macau. It just wasn't that. Now, for those of you who maybe you believe that video, maybe you saw that video, you feel hurt. Why would anyone do this to me? Why would people make fake videos on Facebook? Well, they make fake videos because what they want is they want to elicit an emotional reaction from you, and they want you to click away, to keep clicking through a web of horrendous websites all the way that they are having their ad revenue go up and up and up. You see, what matters today in our world that's post-truth, post-modern, is not the fact so much, but the emotion. That's what matters. The emotion is what will get you clicking away. Now, this week, I thought that I heard what was, I was sure, fake news, because I didn't believe it at first, that they were saying they were going to merge the Scarlets and the Ospreys. I thought, for sure, this is fake news. Then it came up on reputable sites, so I I had an emotional reaction, started clicking away, started texting people, saying, I'm done with the regional game, I'm never going on Pakistan again if this happens, anyone else have this reaction? Yeah, there's a few of us. Now, I've got, a, I've got a verse, if any of the powers to be are listening to this on podcast or whatever. Uh, 2 Corinthians 6, verse 14. Do not be unequally yoked. <laughs> what communion has light with darkness? I think that's worth an amen, isn't it? So, it's true. Sorry, Josh, but I mean, 
no, no, we're not having it. We're not having it. Now, I know, right, as you, all of us here, we're prone. We're prone to overreacting with, with emotion over reason. And it can be over lots of things. It can be over rugby. I know I've gotten way too angry about Jamie Oliver trying to ruin our lives by taking away the sugar from all the drinks. I don't know if anyone else is with me on that. But it really annoyed me when I went to Toby Carvery, went to get my free refill. I like having a couple of Pepsis. But there's no more Pepsis left on the pump in Toby Carvery, only the sugar-free options. And I asked them why, and they said, Jamie Oliver and his campaign. And at that point, I was thought, I want to write a letter right now. I didn't write a letter, but I don't know how many of us have been in that emotional state where we see something, oh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to write a letter. I'm going I'm to do an email. Or the worst one, you know, this conviction, no need for hands, the people who tweaked at companies all the time to try and get there, not looking at anyone in particular, to try and get them to listen. But this is something we all do, okay? We're all prone to reacting emotionally before we think. And sometimes we overreact and we do silly things you know if if Scotland had beaten Wales I think that we would have all had a different atmosphere coming in to church this morning you know I'm guessing maybe someone did fall for that that plane video maybe you have watched fake news on Facebook maybe you have clicked away and all this stuff and you found yourself overreacting because we live in an age where actually feelings have been weaponized that's the currency what the media likes. The worst thing you can do is offend somebody. Whether it was rational or not, it was the emotional state of the person that counts rather than what actually happened. And it's something to be careful of in the church as well. Within charismatic church circles, okay, we love the emotion. What we want is we want the, we want the worship to give us the feels, don't we? We want to feel something in the worship. We want to feel the presence of God. We want to feel God move. We want to feel him in prayer. We want to feel God move in the word. We want that emotional feeling. Now, that's not wrong, by the way. It's not wrong. God did give us emotions, and his presence is amazing when you feel that, when you have that moment. But it's not everything. It's half of the answer. It's half of the picture. Jesus actually calls us to a higher way. And that's what I want to look at this morning, and I want to unpack one kind of simple principle that I think we need, uh, as we live in this culture and as we live out the mission of God, we need to know this as well, because Jesus says to us, yes, I want passion from you, but I also want intelligence. Yes, I want you to use your heart, but I also want you to use your head as well. I want the two to go together. So this morning, we're going to look at Matthew 10, verse 16. Uh, but let me give you a bit of context first. So at the start of Matthew 10, Jesus is gathering his disciples, right? And he's going to send them out on a mission. And this is like cool stuff, because this is what he kind of says to them. He gives them authority to drive out demons in his name and to heal the sick. Then he goes on to say, proclaim this message. The kingdom of heaven has come near Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons, freely you have received, freely give. This is the kind of sermon I guess the blood pump in, right? This is the kind of thing you'd be saying, amen, yes, I want this, come on, let's go out there, let's beat the kingdom of darkness, raise the dead, we've got Jesus' authority. It's a real like, yes, moment, you know, that speech in a film before a big battle, it's like, yeah, come on. But then he shifts gears because in verse 16, he adjusts the expectations and he gives them a principle that he says, if you're going to do all of that, you need to know this. And the principle is still with us today. 
We still have Jesus' authority, by the way. We can do those same things. But if you're going to do that, you need to know this, Jesus has said. So he adjusts expectations. First of all, the first bit of verse 16, I am sending you out. So I am sending you. You're on my mission like sheep among wolves. Now, ironically, Mike actually mentioned this in his brilliant message he brought last week at the 6 p.m. service. But Jesus is saying, I'm sending you out. Off you go. But you're going out like sheep among wolves. It's an obvious picture. The wolf and the sheep, but they're not friends, okay? The, the wolf and the sheep, they're, they're enemies. The wolf wants to eat the sheep. And we're the sheep. I mean, that's not so fun. We think we'd rather be the wolf pack going up there, but we're not. We're the sheep. So what do we do? Therefore, with Jesus, there's always a therefore, right? He doesn't leave us. He warns you, but he doesn't just leave you there. Jesus tells us what to do. Therefore, be as shrewd as snakes and as innocent as doves. Be as shrewd as snakes and as innocent as doves. I'm guessing if you've never heard that verse, maybe that was a bit of a surprise where it went, actually, and the images Jesus chose. But to survive and thrive on this mission, we are going to need to combine the shrewdness of the snake and the innocence of the dove together. Now, I was going to unveil these picture frames, but I think I didn't quite communicate. Yeah, I need to put them up, but here we are. I haven't even seen it myself, so I'm risking... Oh, there we are. That's a very scary-looking snake. Okay, never mind. And we have on this side, I don't know what that is. Oh dear, this is going to go all wrong. I'm going to just put this at the bottom instead. I, there we are. There's a, there's a lovely... There's, actually, I do that as well. There we are. That kind of matches. We've got a lovely dove and we've got a, we've got a very scary looking snake. So for us in 21st century church today, actually, the Great Commission still stands. And Jesus is saying to us, if you want to win... If you want to thrive, if you want to beat the kingdom of darkness back, that's awesome. But opposition will come, so this is what I want you to do. I want you to combine the shrewdness of the snake and the innocence of the dove. Are we up for that? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you so much for your word. I thank you for the challenge that it brings. I thank you for the higher way that it shows us. But I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would speak to us now what you need us to hear. And I pray for each person here that they would receive from your word what it is you are specifically speaking to them as well, we pray. Help us, we pray, to become more like you. Help us to be equipped so that we can fulfill your mission and see the world change as a result. In Jesus' name, and we all said together, amen, amen. Okay, well. This morning's preach was actually inspired by a book I've been reading by Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Now, if you weren't aware, if you only knew him from the civil rights movement, he was first and foremost a Baptist preacher. And for him, he would say, everything I do in civil rights and fighting the evils of injustice and racism, it all flows out of my ministry. What I want to do more than anything is to be a good pastor to be a good minister. And he's an amazing man. And so his book, A Gift of Love, I've been reading through it, is a collection of some of his sermons. And he is an amazing, um, kind of biblical, kind of he's taking it all apart. He's so, so good at it. And so I've kind of taken a bit of inspiration from him because this is his one-liner that really got me on it as he preached on this verse. So my title for this morning is this. Tough mind, tender heart. 
Say it together. Tough mind. Tender heart. That's what we need. And if you want one key thought, one point to remember and take home with you, it's this. The mission requires a tough mind and a tender heart. It's not optional. The mission requires a tough mind and a tender heart. Let me break it down three ways. Number one, cultivate the intelligence of the serpent. If you want to be this person who combines the two, if you want to win on the mission, if you want to have a tough mind and a tender heart, you've got to start here. Cultivate the intelligence of the serpent. The verse says, be as shrewd as snakes. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't think I've ever used the word shrewd in a sentence. It's not really a word we use much anymore. Uh, But in the Greek, the word is phronimos, okay? I think that's how you say it. This is the word, by the way, that in the Greek translation of the Old Testament is used for the serpent in the garden. So you might be thinking, well, why is Jesus saying for us to have this attribute? Because actually the word, the blue that the Bible uses to describe it in today's terms maybe would be intelligent. Be as intelligent as snakes. That's what Jesus is saying. Now intelligence can be used for good or evil, actually. It can, it's a more neutral attribute, but we need to cultivate intelligence. Martin Luther King's definition of this is, a tough mind is characterized by incisive thinking, realistic appraisal, decisive judgment. The tough mind is sharp and penetrating. The tough-minded individual is astute and discerning. He has a strong, austere quality that makes for a firmness of purpose and solidness of commitment. There speaks the man who intelligently fought against injustice and won as a result. Now, let's be honest, though. Does that sound like your typical Christian to you? If people were to describe Christians who weren't Christians, is that the kind of thing they would say? How would people maybe think of the stereotypical church meeting? I'm guessing they either think that it's, you know, a really irrelevant tradition thing. But if, they, if there's people there and, and young people, they think, oh, it's happy clappy, isn't it? We're all happy, emotional, clapping away. It's a kind of weird thing, isn't it? Because we do clap, but, you know, happy clappy is a kind of strange thing. But here, Martin Luther King is saying, actually, we need to be characterized by this as well. And this is something, by the way, that the church used to be totally defined by. Professor Larry Hurtado, in his book, Destroyer of the Gods, he looks at why was it, from a historical perspective, that Christianity totally destroyed the gods of Greece and Rome and didn't do it by force? How did they totally, why was it when Jesus was born, the majority of the culture were worshipping these gods? By four or five hundred years later, nobody is worshipping these gods. What was it about Christianity that was so different? And so he looks at a few different things that makes Christianity different. I have not time to go through them all. But one of them was this. He noted that early Christianity was unusual as a bookish religion. Now, all the book readers right now are feeling like, oh, I like this point. And all the people who watch the film are just feeling convicted right now. But actually, in that society, in Roman religion, the priest might have sacred writings, but that wasn't part of your worship service. What they did in public worship was, to be honest, drink, eat, maybe other things. They didn't have this involved in it. But in early Christian meetings, they were seen as odd, 
in Roman culture because what they did was, whether you were rich or poor, whether you were illiterate or not, you would gather around the word, whether it was preached and then in Bible study, and they would rip it apart. They would speak, they would discuss, they would exercise their minds. They were known for being people who were really switched on. They were known for using their minds in worship. It set them apart. Now, for us in 21CC, by the way, this is something we are committed to. I want you to know that. And if you're new or visiting, I want you to know that as well. A lot of people have that stereotype, I think, when they see a church with, like, you know, modern stuff and lights. It's a McDonald's church, you know? Slick packaging, low substance. That's what people think, right? But why can't you have slick packaging and good substance? Why can't you combine the two? Why can't you have a steak and market it well? Why, why does it have to be one or the other? And actually, we are committed to the both, by the way. We want to be really relevant in how we kind of get the message out. We're not marketing, but in terms of getting that message out to people, we want to be intelligent in how we do that, but we want it to have substance. Someone who was new to church and recently saved was actually talking to me about how they're finding the services, and they're a younger person, and they enjoy the 6 p.m., but they were saying, you know, you're there him. You know, it's like, a, it's like the, get your thinking cap on kind of service. <laughs> which I really like that description. I said, yeah, you know what I mean? They come in the night, just mess around in the mosh pit craziness or whatever and have free pancakes. But in the morning, you know, you get the thinking cap on. That's a, and I like that. She actually saw that in us. That's something we're actually committed to. And I want to tell you that if you're part of this congregation, we're committed to growing in intelligence and to growing your mind as well. We want to do that. The Berean Jews in Acts 17, we read, they were of more noble character than the others. Why were they? Because they received the message with eagerness. So yes, they were passionate, but they examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. The Bible commends them for not just taking the preacher at his word. So the, by the way, that's what the Bible is not just a lot of nonsense fairy tales. The Bible th says, do this. This example is good. They heard Paul and he said, sounds great. Let's, let's check it out. You shouldn't just take my word on things, by the way, when I preach. I mean, you, I hope you do trust me, but you should be able to say, that was a great message. I'll go and read Matthew 10. I'm going to go read Matthew 10. Actually, that's why we're doing the case for Christ in our connect groups, by the way, because you need to know the basis for why we believe what we believe. And if you are a skeptic here, I, I would encourage you, don't judge Christianity on its worst stereotypes. Judge it by its best minds. Give it the both sides. Not just if you've only seen the emotional excess and you're a more of a thinking type. Read some of the books of the great minds of Christianity. From Alistair McGrath, C.S. Lewis, N.T. Wright, Timothy Keller, Martin Luther King Jr. All these great minds of the church. Read them as well. You need to know that this is something of substance. And this is not a suggestion, by the way. Jesus is saying, if you don't do this, you are open to the wolves. You are open to being manipulated and you will probably manipulate other people emotionally because you will learn from that. And this is something going on in the media all the time. You know, if I remember it was not so long ago in the car and it was radio and was on, and it was a news bulletin about uh, a star of a TV show called Empire who was a victim of some racist, homophobic attack uh, by Trump supporters. And it was kind of seen as this terrible thing that happened in Chicago. Uh, and, and it was, seemed awful. He went on TV afterwards. He was crying on being interviewed about it. Until a few weeks later, the Chicago police came forward and said that it was a hoax. And I remember watching it unfold on Twitter and social media. 
Because what happened was, is that as it unfolded, it was this thing of trial by emotion. And if anyone said, that doesn't sound right, it doesn't add up, they were just, everyone piled in. We live in an age where, on social media, you are, it is, the trial is basically mob rule via the loudest voice, the nastiest words, the biggest emotions. That is how our culture is going. And by the way, this does no good to real victims either because it makes people cynical and skeptical. And we don't want to get cynical. We're going to get to this in a minute, okay? We want to keep soft hearts. But we want you to know that this is happening again and again and again in our social news cycle. Constantly it's happening. And we need to be a people who actually, we don't use emotion to win arguments. We don't stoop to their level. We use truth instead. This is what dictators do. I've got a quote here from someone I've never quoted in a sermon, but it's Adolf Hitler. And this is what Adolf Hitler actually said. I use emotion for the many and reserve reason for the few. If you're someone who's sensitive by nature with a big heart and you're compassionate, don't lose that, but combine it with this. If you don't develop a discerning, truth-based mind that looks for those things, you will be manipulated over and over by a world and by wolves that are only too happy to do so. We need to be a church that guards against that, actually. This is what Martin Luther King, how he puts it, and I can't better it. Never must the church tire of reminding men that they have a moral responsibility to be intelligent. They have a moral responsibility to be intelligent. That's Martin Luther King's words there. We have, a, we have a moral responsibility to it. We're committed to truth. See, passion and emotion without knowledge is dangerous. Paul actually spoke of this, of Jews who rejected Jesus. Romans 10 verse 2, he says, I testify that they are zealous for God, but their zeal is not based on knowledge. Paul is saying they thought they were doing the right thing for God and they were passionate for God, but they were actually on the wrong side and attacking God because they had not synced up their emotion with knowledge. They had not synced it up with truth, with reason. I remember Brian Houston saying that when you feel really angry and you like want to write a letter, he said, my advice is write the letter, sleep on it, throw it away the next morning. <laughs> Type the email, Leave it in your drafts, sleep on it, just get rid of it the next day. Think before you speak. Don't react out of emotion. The greatest commandment according to Jesus is this, so it's not minor. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. Number one commandment. You are to love the Lord your God with your mind. He gave you a mind for a reason. Now, by the way, I want to say that this is for everybody. Please don't exclude yourself because you don't have a PhD in astrophysics, okay? You are made in the divine image. God made you. He gave you a mind. I have met people with lots of qualifications who were fools. And I have met people with no qualifications who were geniuses. It's not to do with, you know, just accumulated knowledge. It's to do with... Is your attitude one of, I want to be pursuing truth. 
I want to worship God in my mind. I want to grow in this area. It's about that commitment, that posture. Matthew 7 verse 24, Jesus actually uses the word phronomos, that word for intelligence, somewhere else in the Gospel of Matthew. At the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount, after saying it all, this is what he says. Therefore, everyone, I want you to say everyone. everyone. Say, that's me. Okay, everybody here. Therefore, everyone, every single person, whatever your qualifications, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a, and that word is phronomos, is like a intelligent man who built his house on the rock. Intelligence lies to everybody here. Jesus is saying, if you put my words into practice and you make sure that my authority is before your emotions, you won't go wrong. You will be an intelligent person. Actually, your life will be like a house built on the rock. The winds and the waves of circumstance and emotions might fly around, but you will stay consistent and steady. You will be someone people look at and say, that person is always consistent, always smiling, always going forward. How do they do it? Whereas the contrast is the person who just goes by their feelings, says, oh, the, the sand looks nice, builds the house on the sand, the waves comes, and down it falls eventually in the hard times. This is for every single one of us. I know this isn't like a woo kind of point. <laughs> but the mission requires a tough mind and a tender heart. It requires the both. Now, for all you softies, don't worry, okay? We don't stop there. Because we're not just all going to be super intelligent and have no hearts. No, we want to have the two of them together. So I'll move it over here so we can help visualize it. Because the second thing you need to do is, if we're breaking this down, is to cultivate this. You need to stay pure of heart as innocent as a dove. Stay pure of heart as innocent as a dove. See, intelligence is not enough. Jesus isn't saying you can pick. You can be either as intelligent as a snake or either as innocent as a dove. Pick gifting. He's not saying that. He's saying the both. You have to do the two. The two of them go together. Be as innocent as doves. Don't, Jesus is saying, develop a Sherlock Holmes approach where you become a genius but you become arrogant and cold and detached and you look down on people. The Apostle Paul warns against it, who is an absolute genius, but still said in 1 Corinthians 8, warns us, knowledge puffs up while love builds up. If you are going to pursue knowledge, make sure you don't become a patronizing idiot. They used to tell us at college, don't become the theology police in sermons. Just sitting there criticizing, oh, no, I'm quite wrong, I don't know about that. Don't be those people. Treat people as people. Keep your heart open. Make sure you don't start to see life as a game where you can use people to win instead of actually know that every single person is made in God's image. Every single person is valuable. I remember a time when I felt like I was playing the part of a wolf among sheep. And I remember when I was in Bible college, in second or third year. And when it comes to that point, right, you're meant to lead teams and lead multiple teams. And, and what they do is this. Part of the fun or the challenges is that they assess you on this and they assign you enough students to do half of the job, but not enough to do the whole job. So what they say is, this is a test of your leadership skills. Go out and recruit people to serve on your team. 
And usually these jobs are, you know, the really boring jobs. The real trade of Hillsong College shouldn't be, you know, people on cliffs and whatever. It should be someone stacking chairs for hours just doing that, okay? That's really more what's going on. So go and find, find those people. And, and I really struggled to do it until some wise American told me, I can't remember who, bro, you need to get to know some first years. And so we had an idea. Myself and another one of my housemates who was an American, not you, by the way. Sawyer's far too nice. This is my friend Sawyer. He's from America via Sweden. He's, he's here with us this morning. So we haven't said a welcome to you. So thank you for being with us, Sawyer Bender. But, uh, but he, we went and we decided, right, what we're going to do is this. When the first years come into college and they're, like, they're, they're so excited to meet Joel Houston and, and, and all the stuff that's going to go on. And they come in and this is the point where the vultures descend, okay? We, we can see fresh meat has come into college and we can recruit them to stack the chairs for us. So what we did was, me and my friend, we went to the first year party and we worked that room. I worked that room cynically. I went around and met as many first years as I could, shook their hand, welcomed them to college. Remember me, the only Welsh guy here with this accent? Made sure they remembered me, worked the whole thing so that we would have more people to stack chairs for our team. And I did it, and afterwards I felt like my soul needed a shower afterwards. I felt wrong what, what I'd just done. I mean, but I mean, it got the job done. But college actually taught me as well that, that networking is not everything. Because I remember our principal saying to us, this is the measure of a man. What does someone do? How does someone treat someone who can do nothing for them? How do you treat someone who can do nothing for you? Nothing. They'll never be able to help you in anything. Maybe they'll never be able to really give to you. How do you treat someone in that scenario? That's the real measure of a man or a woman. How will you treat someone who can do nothing for you? Do you still see them as who they are? A divine image bearer of inestimable value. Do we see that? See, Jesus warns us intelligence is not enough. You also need the innocence of the dove. Lest you turn into a wolf yourself. That's what will happen otherwise. And the keys can come up. See, the, the, well, the verse here, when it says as innocent as doves, the word innocent there literally means unmixed. So it means really pure. What Jesus is saying is, I want purity of heart from you. That's what I want. I want purity of heart. Romans 6 tells us, I want you to be wise about what is good and innocent about what is evil. Pure about what is evil. Don't have a half and half heart. In other words, keep it pure. Don't let bitterness invade it. Don't let cynicism invade it. Don't let so unforgiveness invade it. Keep your heart pure. You know, you see this in all of the heroes of the faith. You see the stamp of the two working together. Martin Luther, the German monk reformer, not Martin Luther King, right? But he was named after him. You see it in him. He was this amazing, you know, theologian. But yet historian Alec Ryrie notes of him, Luther's theology was not a doctrine. It was a love affair. Like any lover, he found it incredible that his beloved should love him, unworthy as he was. Church, this is meant to be a love affair. And the love affair involves body, mind, and heart together. The Apostle Paul notes in 1 Corinthians 13, the famous passage, If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries... And all knowledge, imagine that, you know everything, 
all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. Not you were of some use. Without love, we are nothing, even if we know everything. Church, let us be a group of people where the motive for us is love. The motive behind every system is love. The motive behind every graphic design is love. The motive behind every person serving in the sound desk is love. The motive behind every person serving in kids is love. The motive behind every person welcoming on the door is love. The motive behind every sermon is love. Let the motive behind everything we do be love. Because if we don't have love, we don't have anything. You see, this is a rescue mission of love. It began in love, and it ends in love. It's going to require intelligence, and it's going to require purity. But God so loved the world that he gave his son, who showed us what love looks like when he died for us, so that we could come to know him and share in his love, because God is love. This whole thing is about love. And that should get us excited this morning, because we are all about love. We are all about the heart. This is a love affair like no other. And if you don't know him, I wish I could describe it to you. Because there is nothing like knowing Jesus. Nothing. And it's not just some emotional hysteria. Because there is the mind attached to it. I know him with my mind. But I know him with my heart as well. This is the love affair of God. This is what this story is about. William Williams Pantakalin, the greatest of the Welsh hymn writers, has on his tombstone emblazoned, Cariad Adiranthem, a Cariad Simparhai. In heaven, love is the anthem, and an eternal love that lasts forever. This is what this is all about. The mission requires a tough mind, and a tender heart that is united in a love for God and a love for his people that he made in his image. So cultivate the intelligence of the serpent, but stay pure of heart. Guard your heart. Stay pure. Got one application, and it's going to be different depending on who you are, because first of all, I want to speak to people who maybe your strength is the intelligent bit, your weakness is the dove bit, okay? Maybe you'd rather read a book than go see a relative, right? The, the idea of you doing pastoral care just sends shivers down your spine. But if I asked you to study church history, you'd be like, yes, okay? If that's you, I'm guessing there's less of, I, I'm almost going to say us, less of those people on that side who maybe lean that way. What I want you to do this week is I want you to cultivate the heart bit, Go out of your way and intentionally do something to bless someone that's not going to benefit you whatsoever. Go and visit someone who's sick. Pop into a relative you haven't seen in a while. Royal someone, as we say in this church. Give someone an anonymous gift in love. Take someone out for a meal. Do something that requires heart and your, your presence, your person to be engaged that will benefit someone and bring no benefit to you. Do that this week. Maybe for some of you, if you're honest, you've got a tender heart and you're a softy. But the tough mind bit is the one you struggle with. You know, maybe you're the one who, you know, people will try and wind you up and say things because they know you're like, see whether you believe it or not. If that's you, 
right? Don't dismay on that because that's an amazing thing to have a tender heart. But don't be content to stay there and say, well, this is my bit. I'm not, you know, I hate when people say, I'm not a theologian. I'm not an intelligent person. Don't say those words of yourself. You were made in God's image. You were made in his image. A theologian, by the way, is someone who has thoughts about God. If you've ever thought about God, you're a theologian. Whether you're a good or bad one, I mean, that's another thing. But if that's you, I want you to step out of the box this week and do something that will stretch your mind. Maybe read a book that's not just a popular level Christian book, not just a page of Every Day with Jesus. There's nothing wrong with that. Read something that's going to really stretch you. Kev Adams told me when I was still learning, he was recommending books for me, saying, this book's going to stretch your mind. It's going to be hard to read it, but it'll be worth it at the end. And it was. Maybe you need to read The Case for Christ for yourself. Maybe you should read Martin Luther King's book. Maybe you should read something that's going to stretch you. If you really have to, an audio book counts, okay? It's all right. You can use an audio book or a podcast or a documentary, but do something that will stretch your mind. And resolve to be someone who leads their emotions. Don't let your emotions lead you. As Mike Adams said, emotions are great servants, bad masters. Great servants, bad masters. Make sure you master them, not the other way around. The mission requires a tough mind and a tender heart. Can we all close our eyes together? What I want you to do right now is I want you to use your imagination. And I want you to imagine a church that has excellence in everything it does. A church that's strategic, smart in its thinking, that people could never accuse of being dumb and superstitious if they came because it's too bookish. Imagine a church that encouraged the congregation to stretch their minds, to cultivate intelligence, that pursued truth. A church was committed to loving God with its mind. I hope you were challenged this morning by that word. It challenges me as well, to be honest. But I want to just tell you briefly how. How are we meant to do this? Because there was a third point that I didn't get to, and it's this. Look to the God of genius and grace. See, these attributes that God asks for us are ones he has himself. Because you're made in his image, you can have them too. Dr. King notes, the greatness of our God lies in the fact he is both tough-minded and tender-hearted. He is both. And we see this in high definition, in the one who was the visible image of the invisible God. In Jesus Christ, actually, he calls his followers to this because he embodies this. He had such intelligence and yet such a heart. We read in the Gospels that Jesus would weep a lot. He would have compassion on people. He would help them. He would deal with all kinds of people in all levels of society. He would be with the outsiders. But yet, what a genius. Read the Sermon on the Mount and read what Western civilization was built on. This guy, I mean, if he wasn't who he said he was, by the way, how come he brought up these, the best of the best of ethical teaching the world has never bettered? Jesus is the master communicator. He has the mastery of images. He was able to debate with the intellectual elite in Jerusalem, and he was able to communicate with poor, illiterate peasants in the countryside. He is a genius, but yet he has this heart for people. The two go together, and you see it ultimately on the cross. 
See, the cross is a move of genius. God knew that evil had to be ended. And because all have sinned, we have all taken part in evil. So how does God end evil without ending us? The cross is the answer. The stroke of genius. For God's but, for God so loved the world that he gave. The motive was love behind it all. The two, you can't really separate them. They're working together. For Jesus himself, he doesn't ask us to do something he didn't do himself. He walked into the den of wolves. He actually foretold it. In Isaiah we read, he was led like a lamb to the slaughter. But even as Jesus went to his death, he was helping people. He was putting in things to care for his mother. He was going to the cross praying forgiveness in his enemies. He had time for the thief on the cross next to him. As he's dying, he still has time for people. This is the God of incredible compassion and grace and power. But also he is the genius behind it all. For the Christian, he doesn't ask us to do something he hasn't done. If you want to know what the way it looks like, put your eyes on Jesus. Gaze on the cross with the genius and the grace of God. Meet. If you're not a Christian today, and you want to know him, you want to make your peace with him, I want you to know that two things are required. What God wants from you is he wants your mind to be engaged and he wants your heart to be engaged. The Bible says that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, that's a mental statement. But you realize he truly is Lord. He's the boss. If you confess with your mouth, so mind to mouth that Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart, he was raised from the dead, you will be saved. So we're going to pray together, all of us as one family. And if that's you, if you want to make peace with God, if you want to know the wonders of relationship with him, to be part of this love affair, to know heaven awaits you, to know your eternal destiny is secure, it's all available. But you have to reach out to him with head and heart together. So that's every head bowed and every eye closed. Let's pray this together as one family. And if this is you and your heart's racing right now, and your mind's maybe a bit, oh, this is the moment. Let's repeat this as a family. Dear Lord Jesus, I thank you that you died for me. I am sorry for my sin and all of my mistakes. Forgive me. And change me. And make me new. I confess that you are Lord. And I believe that you were raised from the dead. And now I know that I am saved. Help me to love you with my head, with my heart, with my strength. And to love others till I see you face to face. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from 21st Century Church. If you've enjoyed this podcast, we'd appreciate it if you could review and share it on social media. Remember to check us out at 21stCenturyChurch.co.uk for any more information. We'll see you next time.